Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're joined by Mark Murano. He is the publisher of Climate Depot. He is also a former senior staff member of the Senate Environment, Environment and Public Works Committee. Uh, ClimateDepot.com, of course, is where you can find a lot of his work. And his most recent book is... The Great Reset, Global Elites, and the Permanent Lockdown. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Emily. Happily, happy to be here today. Tell us a little bit about ClimateDepot.com and, and what folks can find if they go to the website. Uh, well, I started at Climate Depot after I, I was at, worked in the United States Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. I worked for uh, Senator James Inhofe, who was the chairman and then ranking member, and I was the director of communication. And I also did the a thousand dissenting scientists report on climate change. But the Senate, uh, I've left the Senate. The Senate became very restrictive, even to do a website at the Senate. There were so many rules and, you know, delays. So I decided to uh, start up my own uh, news site. I did that in 2009, and Climate Depot is a daily news information site. So The Great Reset um, is a book that you I actually want to talk about the kind of broader Great Reset and then yeah. how how it became the book. Um, so so tell us, you know, what the Great Reset is, because we, we've definitely talked about it on the show, but it sounds like, you know, something you'd only hear Alex Jones talking about. It sounds like yeah. <laughs> this great new world order, uh, high level conspiracy. And in some ways, it, it really is that it's just totally out in the open. Um, so tell us about what the Great Reset is and then how it became this book. Well, yeah, the, the Great Reset, actually, it's it's a culmination of 100 plus years of essentially the intellectual class of the world believing that um, that they can make decisions for people over, over their own lives but based on their intelligence, their expertise, and their credentials. So I started in 1913, and it obviously goes back even centuries to, you know, to research for scarcity, Thomas Malthus, the economist. But for our purposes, in Woodrow Wilson, 1913, like this idea of the managerial class or the administrative state or rule by expertocracy, in other words, credentialed experts taking away the burden. And they saw this as a good thing, Emily. That's the thing. This didn't start out as necessarily an evil plot by people to take over the world. This is how the, it's called the, basically the arrogance of the intellectual class and experts. They believe that they can 
manage every aspect of our lives much better than we can. And that if left to our own devices, we would create, you know, inequity, racism, resource scarcity, climate crisis, et cetera, that we need to be managed. So Woodrow Wilson had great, this had great appeal to him. This was proposed. The idea was people could still vote, but they wouldn't have to worry about so many aspects of their lives because experts would basically manage it and tell them what to do. And they wouldn't have to worry about too much freedom essentially was causing this problem. So we go forward, it had some limited success It introduced the idea, Franklin Delano Roosevelt comes along and you have a guy named Stuart Chase, his kitchen cabinet advisor, one of his top economic advisors in a 1932 book and then later in, in a book uh, after the war talking about the end of World War II, proposing basically what sounds like a great reset back then. It's about expert rule, administrative state, nationalizing food, transportation, energy, uh, and agriculture. It's an, it's an incredible manifesto that he writes. And he actually has the line in his 1932 book called The New Deal, why should China have, I'm sorry, why should Russia have all the fun remaking the world? So in the book, I update that to why should China have all the fun remaking the world? Because the intellectual class has always been, was incredibly enamored with Stalin in 1930s. Remember, this is when the New York Times was winning Pulitzers for their coverage <laughs> and all the intellectuals loved him. Well, fast forward, and now you have everyone from Justin Trudeau saying he has basic admiration for China's dictatorship. You have Tom Friedman, New York Times. You have the UN climate chief praising China's centralized control. So I, I tie all that together. And that's the gist of it. This is That's the movement behind the movement. But to answer your question directly, how did it come about? So this movement, and of course, we had the 19, early 1990s dealt more with sovereignty, was George Bush's new world order, the idea of National sovereignty being a race, you'd have coalitions and expansion of, uh, you know, just the the, the, the sort of the diminution of the uh, nation state and instead have a global order. So what happened was that was seen as a conspiracy theory. But really what happened was COVID lockdowns, March of 2020 was the game changer that they had been waiting for. And when I mean they, as I mean the forces of sort of a new global order, this gave governments unprecedented power from shutting down schools, churches, restaurants, businesses. Governors could issue stay-at-home orders without any democracy. No stinking democracy was necessary. It was like dictators. A public health bureaucrat would issue a directive. A politician was more than eager to ban uh, you know, gardening supplies in Michigan, or they were more than eager to ban double features in L.A. County. You, know, you could go to a single movie outside, double single movie at a drive-in, but you couldn't stay for two movies because that wasn't considered COVID safe. There was no vote on any of this. <laughs> that... COVID lockdown was the inspiration and the water that activated the entire Great Reset. Within six weeks, the head of the World Economic Forum in Davos, who was pushing this idea of a Great Reset, had first uttered that phrase in 2014. Klaus Schwab talked about a rare, narrow window of opportunity in which to reset the world, this time for climate change. Uh, and that's what they've set about doing since March of 2020. And, and that's been why this is so real to people. Uh, it, I, don't, I don't even consider it a conspiracy theory because at all, because you mentioned they're so open about it that the, you know, all of my sources in the book is New York Times, BBC, Washington Post, <laughs> USA Today, 
every major publication and the words of Klaus Schwab citing his book, citing the televised Davos conferences they have every year. I mean, that's all the sourcing. You don't need to get secret documents or Freedom of Information Act. This isn't, you know, I didn't stumble upon the Pentagon Papers to reveal this. You don't need any of that. It's all out in the open, as you said. Right. And I think that uh, brings us to an important question, which is who is Klaus Schwab and what is the World Economic Forum? Because the World Economic Forum is one of those things that I think people are aware of. They know it's out there and they know it's a a powerful global organization. Um, But who is Klaus Klaus Schwab and, and how much power exactly does he have over at the World Economic Forum? He, he's a very influential. It's, you know, he's got a lot of power, too. So here's how it works. It started in 1971, the World Economic Forum. Klaus Schwab uh, became enamored with essentially the teachings of Henry Kissinger. Uh, and he became a sort of a student of Henry Kissinger and loved sort of that globalist vision of the world. Or the, and, and he came up with the phrase, he's widely credited with starting the stakeholder capitalism, which essentially is... The opposite of capitalism, instead of looking at free markets and the profit motive and return on investors and, and capital investment and profit, he decided that you you to have a uh, what he called the social value of your business. And this is really what started the whole. It was modeled after the Chinese social credit system. And it was modeled. This it's now the model for essentially woke investing, environmental social governance. So he started with that premise. And his idea was, and it's a brilliant idea with these meetings in Davos, the reason he's gained such prominence and influence is because these meetings in Davos are a way for billionaires and millionaires, world leaders, corporate heads, media and academia to all meet, get together without, especially the political part, the politicians don't need to fill out uh, you know, any requests, they don't have to worry about lobbying regulations and the businesses, the CEOs don't have to worry about whether they're violating, you know, access rules or anything like that. These are just free for alls outside of the purview and regulation of any of the host governments that show up and just about every world leader shows up. And he's also gained his influence by starting this young leadership program, which everyone from Justin Trudeau, Gavin Newsom, the prime minister of uh uh, Netherlands, and even the the, re- the new prime minister of England, uh, and also their cabinets and officials. So they crank them out. At one point, you know, Klaus Schwab brags that he penetrates the cabinets in his, you know, sort of evil James Bond villain voice uh, uh, from an early Sean Connery James Bond. He comes off that way. So with all of that, he's got this collection of people who can meet off the books from regulation. They can consort. They have a great time. It brings in English royalty, Prince Charles, Prince Andrew, all these come together and they talk about what they consider the most pressing issues. And of course, it's always the issues like climate change is always at the forefront, woke uh, woke uh, sociological issues. This is really what they worry about. And the whole premise is to reinvent what they say is capitalism or reset capitalism now. I was actually reading Winston Churchill's Iron Curtain Iron Curtain speech last night. She gave in Missouri uh, after the Second World War, and he talks about what would become the United Nations in that speech. And I'm thinking, this is Winston Churchill. This is the, the sort of anti-communist. And I was thinking about it through the prism of somebody like. Georgia Maloney, just elected uh, prime minister of Italy, who's pro-EU, but anti what you might call wokeness, what you might call the sort of cultural progressivism of some of these global organizations. And as I was reading the speech, I was thinking, 
I don't I don't believe that this is naivete. I, it almost seems like something just went very, very wrong. <laughs> but I wanted to ask you, Mark, as you look back at the history of Woodrow Wilson, FDR, um, even people like Churchill uh, coming out of the wreckage of the first part of the 20th century and saying wow. we need some of these centralized organizations, even something like NATO, ultimately, to to ensure security. What did go wrong? Because <laughs> uh, looking back from from right now, it seems like, of course, this project went horribly awry. Um, but how did it end up being sort of captured by uh, people who are, who are so culturally opposed to so much of the world? Well, that's a great question. And that that is why I wrote the great. That's what would drawn me to the Great Reset. You know, there's a book in 1985 called Everything. Uh, let's see. All I really needed to know, I learned in kindergarten. Well, when it came to the Great Reset, my slogan was all I ever really needed to know, I learned during the climate debate, which I've been doing for two decades and going to every United Nations climate summit. So to answer your question, NATO, the United Nations, they set and to a very limited extent, they can be very uh, wise choices and very and have very important impacts, particularly in the case of, you know, international conflict, uh, coming in as mediators, even peacekeeping. The problem is that sort of like the old Reagan, once a government entity is started, you're never going to be able to A, control it or get it uh, get it to keep from growing. So what happened is government ambition, bureaucratic ambition is this probably the simplest answer to give to your question of what happened. So all of these things that have an original narrow focus end up expanding and expanding. One of the controversies, of course, with NATO is how they wanted to get Ukraine to expand. And of course, that you know antagonized Russia. And then many say that's one of the big key reasons that they invaded. So you, you end up, instead of creating peace, you can create war. But in the case of, for instance, the United Nations, which was more of my expertise, uh, you can see we're in the climate debate, as an example, from the late 18th century to the from the discovery of a greenhouse 19th century the discovery of a greenhouse gas effect through different cycles of global cooling and warming and people worried about aerosols in other words climate before global warming caused before our co2 caused before our fossil fuels caused global warming fossil fuels caused global cooling and that's what they believed in the 1970s and you can actually look at there was a sort of a free exchange of scientific ideas you didn't have as many of these big international conferences that created you know, simplified funding mechanisms, and basically the one view of science would only get funded and others would fall away. And then what happened was in 1988, the United Nations got ambitious and started the UN Climate Panel. Now, as an example of how these big organizations lose mission, when the United Nations started their climate panel, they were to examine how carbon dioxide was influencing the climate. If they failed for any reason to find that carbon dioxide emissions were not creating a climate crisis, they would fail to have a reason to exist. And as a and as a more of an incentive to find that it's a crisis, they if they failed to find that CO2 was creating a crisis, they would fail to have a reason to come up with the solution. So the UN got to come up with the crisis by selecting scientists and being the gatekeeper of peer review. And we found this out. They, they threatened journal editors, top UN scientists. And they also got to come up with a solution. It was an incredible deal. In other words, you could have a self-perpetuating lobbying organization that would never end because you could keep claiming the crisis was an emergency and needed a solution. And you needed annual conferences and you needed bigger budgets and you needed climate slush funds and you needed 
um, all sorts of power and new treaties and the Copenhagen and Kyoto and Paris. So you see, that's where it goes wrong is that these bureaucrats aren't going to be content and these organizations aren't going to be content being sort of a limited police or security role. They're going to get into all sorts of other issues. And of course, the UN has expanded its tentacles into a million other, you know, sociological issues as well. And then, of course, another example would be the World Health Organization and public health in general. They were started noble idea that you would get expert advice. And somehow now these public health with use of emergency decrees, and that's a big part of the book, is once you have emergency decrees and you have unelected bureaucrats basically setting the stage, then you end up with a sort of Chinification of America, one party Chinese rule. And that is where things go really wrong. So simplified answer, all of these things sound good on paper and can be very beneficial if left to limited, narrowly focused roles. But the nature of government, the nature of these international organizations, the nature of bureaucracy, which they create, makes that virtually impossible. So that's how you end up with these ambitious, unelected, expert, bureaucratic international organizations that literally are plotting like more and more centralization of power away from democratic, uh, the, the voice of the people. Yeah, and it's it's technocracy. And this is a really weird question, but I wonder, you know, you're talking about Woodrow Wilson and sort of thinkers of that time and, and leaders of that time. Is there any overlap uh, between the sort of idea of expertism and eugenics. I mean, obviously, eugenics was a huge fad in the, the early part of the 20th century. In your research, have you come across any crossover and sort of because that's a very technocratic idea at the end of the day, saying we should it we is. should give a... power to the, the superior people? Yes. In fact, the, the eugenics movement sort of looked at, you know, they actually had like almost like a class system race system and you were looked at as sort of the unwashed masses of the you know people that needed to be managed you you needed to have fertility management uh in terms of limiting the number of undesirables so in a way it was kind of like the ultimate expression of an expertocracy where you just have people who come up you know that essentially becomes a racist uh snobbery where you're like you know, this is we, we need to have a world and a vision uh, that that we that we present here and we and to allow people to essentially reproduce uh, unlimited is going to create all sorts of half breeds and uh, mental issues and race issues. So this was the ultimate form of control. Now, just hold that thought a second and think of how we were treated under covid. We were treated. Human beings were treated healthy human beings locked down for the first time in free society were treated as evil disease vectors that were going to be killing people and killing grandma. And we needed to be managed, controlled to every aspect of our life. Very similar to, to a lot of the basics of eugenics, same sort of impulses, same sort of, you need to listen to experts. Uh, one of the examples I love giving is like, you know, the parents say, say a parent didn't finish high school and you go up to a school board and you, you never graduated, you didn't go to college, but you're upset that your, your first grader is wearing a mask eight hours a day and they're having trouble breathing, they're having trouble learning, speaking, they're miserable. And you go complain. And I've seen even videos of this where school board members will chastise parents. Are you 
Do you have a degree in epidemiology? Do you are you an expert? Have you studied this? We are relying on the advice of people who have 40 years experience. They've been in government. They've been at you know this university. They have these degrees. They're telling us you have no say. You don't know what's right. They know what's best for your kid. It's that kind of mentality. And that's actually was the same whether you're talking eugenics, whether you're talking COVID, uh, and whether you're talking in climate, the same type of thing in climate. Are you a scientist? How can you say that? You know, this is 97% of the experts. Unless you have a degree and hundreds of peer-reviewed papers, you have no business disputing this. You must accept, you know, the Green New Deal. That's it's that same mentality that we've dealt with for, you know, over a century now. The the climate part of this, obviously, that's your specialty, um, and it does seem to be that's really at the heart of these these efforts or these campaigns to kind of exert global control because you can't really do anything about climate change on a piecemeal individual individual national basis without cooperation from other nations. We could we could put every coal miner out of work here in the United States, and it won't matter at all unless we have China and, and India on board. Uh, and so I, I guess I understand how from a technocratic perspective, uh, you, you sort of have to utilize the power of these organizations. Um, so, so how much of the genesis here is related to climate change and now is sort of tentacling into culture at large? You know, it's, it's sort of uh, also coming to be, you know, about uh, gender and race and all of these different initiatives. Um, d- does it all really start with climate? Well, good question. I don't think it all really starts. And I still I'm still trying to sort out because here's the problem they had with climate. And you can go back to 1980s and look at Gallup polls. Concern over climate never really changed among particularly the American public. And you know, it ebbed and flowed. Al Gore's movie came out. Concern rose. Climate gate scandal breaks. Concern drops. But it was always just never really changed. Even Gallup admitted that. Other major polling firms have admitted that. They just never did a good job. So this is one of the reasons they went after children, the Sunrise Movement, Greta Thunberg. They can't. They couldn't convince adults of the seriousness of the climate crisis, so they decided to scare the hell out of kids. And, for, and in large part, they succeeded You know, going after them. So here's the problem. Once March 2020 hit and the world went into complete lockdown, the climate activists were initially jealous. I actually did a whole special report. One of my chapters is actually devoted, I have two chapters devoted to the COVID climate connection in the Great Reset book. And the first chapter on climate it de- details what I'm just explaining now. They were at first jealous of the COVID lockdowns, like, and they can do that. Why didn't we do that? That's what we've been calling for for years. And it literally was part of the agenda. They were calling for planned recessions to fight global warming, a degrowth movement. Well, what's an economic lockdown? But- Exactly that. You know, it's a, it's sort of like the climate agenda in action. School kids got to stay home. You didn't have to skip. Transportation went to a trickle. All these articles about how the cities and our air was cleaner and there was no airline travel and our and our uh, environment was improving dramatically. And this was just so good and it's good for people and we should never return to normal. This is where the whole idea of the Great Reset was born. We were going to collapse the old way, collapse the current system and build back better, uh, which is another phrase coming from the world. Economic Forum and promoted by everyone from Joe Biden to the European leaders, Canada, Australia, they were going to build back better, which meant build back in a sustainable sort of climate focused way. But the problem is, it's not as simple as saying everything is at the root of climate. I think everything's at the root of crises. And I try to explain that in the book. Climate was the crisis du jour for for decades, and it was essentially all in. They tried overpopulation, they tried resource scarcity, they tried global cooling. 
They tried uh, even species extinction. Nothing would capture the imagination. Nothing that they thought would work. So they combined all of that into climate and they just pushed and pushed. But they really weren't getting anywhere. Even President Obama, supermajority in House and Senate, 2009, 2010, barely got a climate bill through the House, never even came up for a vote in the Senate because even Democrats like Al Franken weren't going to support the bill. They didn't have the votes. So this is why they went to the Chinification of America. Obama went executive order. Every cabinet agency under Biden became a climate agency because the, the, the executive branches are growing at the, to the, uh, at the expense of legislative. That's another big trend that we've been following. But simple answer to your question is crises is what they want to use to scare people. COVID was the greatest boon because Climate, COVID succeeded where climate didn't. COVID cut across party lines, ideological, age groups. It terrified everyone. And people were willing to give up century-long held traditions of liberty in order to be temporarily safe. 15 days to flatten the, the, the curve and two weeks to flatten the curve. And we show, and I show that obviously that was, Donald Trump was completely duped by that. But essentially, now they want to combine COVID and climate. And there's actually, a, I have a whole section on that where Harvard University, medical journals, new papers in the journal Nature are all claiming unchecked climate will lead to um, more viruses like COVID. So if you don't support the Green New Deal now, you're back to being a grandma killer, just like if you didn't support lockdowns uh, two and a half years ago. So I think what they're in love with is the crises and the fear, like Greta Thunberg says, I want you to panic. They want us to be in a constant state of emergency, a constant state of panic, because then we're willing to give over power to, to the few and we're willing to uh, not question it and we're willing to do it for our safety. And this is why in the book I detail going back to the Roman Republic, through the Middle Ages, concentration of power, through 1933 Germany, through 9-11, emergency power. We're still living under the terrorism emergency power from 9-11. We're still living under the COVID emergency power. They want to keep crisis, keep fair, keep emergency powers. And I guess to answer your question, they don't really care whether it's climate or COVID. They just want the power and they want the ability to impose this managerial state upon the world. Yeah. And is there maybe an underestimation? I mean, I think people, especially on, on the right and, and even some you know, regular people in the center who dealt with school lockdowns, et cetera, uh, are very aware of exactly what happened over the last couple of years. But is there any sense in which this has become sort of like a post 9-11 plug and play where you can just sort of have a crisis and um, because of the infrastructure that was built up um, and the maybe even the muscle memory, um, you know, in terms of emergency policies, et cetera, et cetera, that was built up during COVID, um, that we're going to get to a place of increasing global crises or, or accelerating global crises. Oh, absolutely. Crises. That's what they're trying. Joe Biden, according to the Washington Post and Associated Press, is set to declare a national climate emergency. The Center for Biodiversity's legal scholars have looked at this and said this will grant him 130 new executive powers, independent of what he was granted under COVID, right? Under COVID emergency, right? Independent of what they're living with under 9-11 terrorism powers that keep being extended. And by the way, that gave us the whole surveillance state. So previous emergency powers build on the, as you just say, muscle memory or the infrastructure where they can just keep, it, it just takes very little to add to it. So what they're doing now, if Joe Biden, he's likely to wait till after the midterm, but he declares a national climate emergency, you're talking about mayors, governors with the power with, that's been laid out by International Energy Agency. Again, for all to see what you would do under energy lockdowns or in the in the words of a um, 
Bill Gates, George Soros-funded European professor Mariana Mazzucato, a climate lockdown will be necessary unless uh, we you know, go through these severe restrictions. They're calling for car-free days in the city. They're calling for the ban on gas-powered cars and their climate emergency. They're calling for limited airline travel. They openly say in all these government reports, government-funded, academia, international energy, people should be only flying once every three years. Business travel should come to almost a halt. Everything can be done, Skype and Zoom. And they want... Uh, Restrictions on you know the food we can eat that on meat eating they're pushing the vegetable process. Bill Gates is investing now. There's billions of dollars invested into this fake meat lab grown, which is different than the Impossible Burger. I find that when I talk to audiences, people think that the Impossible Burger made from like 25 vegetable oil process is the same as lab grown meat. Lab grown meat is a different animal. They take stem cells from a cow, fetal blood from an unborn cow, mix it in a lab, grow it together, artificial flavors, and they print it with a 3D printer. It comes up, it's real meat, it's derived from an animal, but it's like a pod you'd see in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's not a, it's not a cow they're growing in the lab, it's sort of some kind of blob that's derived from a cow. This is what Bill Gates says we are going to have only this available in wealthy countries. That's what he wants to see. Where you say, well, who cares what Bill Gates thinks? Well, you should care what Bill Gates thinks because he's now America's number one farmland owner. And I point this out. This is according to NBC News, not, you know, not Alex Jones. And they're in direct competition with China to buy up American farmland as well. And then, of course, you have equity asset firms buying up other real estate. So what's happening here in a nutshell and the, and the reason they like these emergency powers is they're actively, as we speak, this isn't something that's happening five or 10 years. We are watching our energy system be intentionally collapsed in shortages. We are watching our agricultural system be intentionally collapsed. The net zero agenda going after high yield agriculture, nitrogen in the Netherlands, which also happens to be the number one meat exporter in Europe. So they get two for one. They're creating intentional food shortages. They're collapsing our transportation system. California, unelected, uh, no one voted for this policy of banning gas-powered cars. Governor Newsom issues an executive order. California Air Resources Board, unaccountable bureaucrats come up with a timetable. 17 states, including my home state of Virginia, are going to are on the path to eliminate gas-powered car sales. And then you have the World Bank, former President Nicholas Stern at a World Bank meeting saying we're going to end we need a timetable to end financing for gas-powered cars, which means at the automaker level, they're getting rid of it. And then you have Bank in Australia already announcing that they're not going to give out car loans for people buying a gas-powered car. We didn't vote to end meat-eating. We didn't vote to end high-yield agriculture. We didn't necessarily vote for blackouts. We didn't vote for gas-powered car, uh, gas car bans. But it's happening. That's how the Great Reset works. Our betters at higher levels than us in government and higher levels in the food chain, so to speak, are making these decisions for the benefit of the earth and society. And that's how the vision of this is going forward. So Woodrow Wilson, the administrative state, it's working better than they would have ever have imagined. And I go back to particularly the COVID lockdown. That was the moment where everything was activated.
And this is a, gr a great way to kind of get to the last question I wanted to ask, which is we've seen what happened in Sri Lanka. We've seen what happened in the Netherlands. We uh, have had a little bit of a conversation in this context about Georgia Maloney, who is fairly pro-EU, um, but, you know, again, has that kind of split on the, the cultural progressivism, cultural leftism question. Uh, how is this playing out all over the world? Uh, we we kind of know what's going on in the United States, uh, but in, in other countries, there there has been, you know, the Sweden Democrats, there, there have been sort of populist uprisings. Um, but, but in Europe, in Asia, maybe even in South America, where there's been something of a pink wave, um, how is the Great Reset? How are people reacting to the Great Reset? Well, people are generally hating it. I mean, I think that you could almost argue that his adherence to the Great Reset in um, UK brought down Boris Johnson. I mean, it was, it was you know, he was hated. He was following to a T, particularly the COVID mandates and also the uh, energy mandates. And now the new prime minister who's been selected is lifting a fracking ban. So there seems to be an effort to repudiate that. Well, first of all, we'll know more in the United States once the midterms hit. But in terms of that, you didn't ask me specifically about the U.S., but the U.S., the problem is the Republicans, their their commitment, to, I can't remember, it's called commitment to America, that thing that, that Kevin McCarthy. Yeah, that's right. The commitment it's to just, America. They need to make this focused. It should be no more lockdowns, no ban on gas-powered cars, no ban on meat eating. We are going to embrace, uh, you know, no critical race. They, they should have made this hot button, anti sort of great reset type issues. And I think they could have, you know, energized their base as it is now. Maybe the base is energized enough. I don't know. So we'll see how it goes in America. Sri Lanka, that was a, a protege of the World Economic Forum. Excuse me. He had an article up talking about how prosperous Sri Lanka was going to be with their organic farming mandates. Of course, the country collapsed, food shortages, economic collapse, the presidential palace overrun, swimming pool, the, the peasants took over the, the castle. And, uh, you know, that's what ended up happening. Of course, the World Economic Forum then disappeared the article predicting, you know, how prosperous and happy Sri Lankans were going to be. So they own nothing and had no food and they weren't happy, it turns out. Uh, so we'll see. I don't know. In Canada, Gavin Newsom won in California, uh, Canada. Uh, uh, Justin Trudeau seems unstoppable. We'll see what happens, I guess, uh, in New Zealand and other places. It's the problem, I think, when you when you ask a question like that is the opposition is so weak. It really isn't left versus right anymore. It's corporate versus populism. It's freedom versus tyranny. So when you look at the Republican Party, you know, you can have Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell. They're really not that different than Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, when it comes to these important issues. This has to come from the bottom up. And the whole end of my book, I detail probably the most consequential U.S. election was my home state of Virginia, because it started at the school board level. The lowest level of politics is how you turn this around. And let's see what happens in Italy. But the idea is angry parents showing up protesting the critical race theory mandates and uh, the uh the, the COVID theater and the lockdowns and the masking of kids and uh, also the transgender agenda, they were willing to get arrested. They were willing to be called domestic terrorists by Biden's Justice Department. They toppled a Democratic machine in Virginia that no one thought possible, almost toppled it in New Jersey. It spooked the National Democratic Party. And I include this in the book. According to the New York Times, focus groups after these elections from driven by school board parents angry about all this essentially new normal being imposed on the world 
made the Democrats realize that their own base didn't support it. So right after this focus group the Democrats did, every major city from San Francisco, Philadelphia, New York, Baltimore, Washington lifted their vax mandates and mask mandates. That's the kind of power that angry parents and angry voters and the and the the, the population has if they're willing to impose this. So you can't we can't be dependent upon Republican leaders. Uh, and even in this book, I'm critical of Donald Trump for his being duped on lockdowns for the lowest point of the Trump presidency was Larry Kudlow, his top economic advisor. And I include this in the book, being asked on cable news on April 20th or 21st, 2020, when's the economy going to open back up? This is when we're living under the two weeks to flatten the curve. And his answer was, I don't know. That's up to the medical community. So the most conservative Republican president in, since Ronald Reagan, essentially, ceded control of the United States economy over to Anthony Fauci et al. That is what I call in the book one of the greatest blunders in 50 years of presidency. So it's no longer about partisanship anymore. I mean, the Republicans need a house cleaning when it comes to these type of issues. That's a super interesting point. Mark Morano, climatedepot.com, also the author of the book, which you're not going to forget the title of this one because I think we've said it a million times in the last yeah. hour, The Great Reset, Global Elites and the Permanent Lockdown. Thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you, Emily. appreciate it. Of course. Well, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. <laughs>